Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to the New Books in Indian Religions podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkron. More importantly, I have the pleasure today of speaking again uh, with Dr. Jeffrey Long, who is Professor of Religion, Philosophy, and Asian Studies at Elizabethtown College uh, in Pennsylvania. Uh, He is the uh, co-editor, along with Michael Long, no relation, um, uh, co-editor of a a really fascinating and, in my view, important um, um, Rutledge publication, um, Nonviolence in the World's Religions. Jeffrey, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. So I was just taking a quick peek in preparation for our podcast, and I remember you were you know, what one can think of as an early adopter. <laughs> you were my sixth ever podcast guest in 2019. <laughs> oh, I didn't realize that. I didn't realize. And, and then you, you returned um, um, in 2020. And then you were my 59th guest. And now in 2022, you are, the, you are, well, Guest and podcast, the numbers aren't always the same because some podcasts feature multiple guests, some guests return, etc. But you are currently, um, you went from being the sixth in 2019 to the 180th. Oh, 180. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I was hoping it would be 108, but 180, I'm still the same. <laughs> that's, that's precisely what Laurie Patton said a couple of podcasts ago. <laughs> 180. Oh, that's that's fantastic. Yeah. I've got to take a look and see who's got uh, the coveted 108 slot. See right. who's, who's got that auspicious um, that luck there. That's a number. That's right. Anyhow, um, clearly, since you first appeared on the podcast, uh, when no one knew what Zoom was in 2019, the world has changed. And uh, the, way more listeners now than ever before. I mean, something has changed. I don't know what's going on. Maybe it's the pandemic. Uh, who knows? But uh, more people interested in this niche nerdy thing that I could have ever imagined would be. It's just a very good podcast and it's a fascinating topic. So yeah, good. For, for, for people like you and I, listen, nonviolence in the world's religions. Um, um, let me ask the, the, the more structured question first. How did sure. this come about? I mean, how did you, how did okay. the project come arise? question yeah there is there is a story behind it so uh, Michael and I again same last name no relation but we were colleagues in the same department and there was always this sort of funny confusion about which professor long are you talking about and 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 so on uh, we would get each other's emails uh, etc and uh, so we've always we've been good friends for many years uh, he's since left the college he's an independent scholar now but uh, the project actually began when we were still 
colleagues in the same department. And we had both at different times taught our department's course on religion and violence. And this is a topic that we both find, uh, you know, very urgent, uh, always timely, always important. And so uh, I taught the religion and violence course uh, a few times, and then uh, he took it over. And he also, when he was at our college, he was also in charge of our peace and conflict studies minor program. And so uh, that course on religion and violence was part of that program, as well as being part of religious studies. And we both expressed at, at a certain point, we were having a conversation, multiple conversations actually about this, our dissatisfaction with the fact that the focus is always on violence, uh, it seems, in these conversations. And of course, that is tremendously important, but we're focusing on violence because we want to, uh, we see it as a problem that needs to be overcome, right? We, we would all like to envision a world that is uh, at least less violent and maybe more, more utopianly uh, nonviolent, ideally. And we both have the intuition that while religion can play a, uh, does play a, a massive role in fomenting violence in many respects, uh, it is also the chief resource that many of us turn to uh, for resources for nonviolence, uh, for ideals and practices uh, that are conducive to nonviolence. So there's this dynamic where you have this, this of course, already very complex religion uh, phenomenon of religion, which I mean, no one can even really agree on even what it is or if it's even a useful category. But there is also this sort of very strong kind of gut level intuition that many of us have and that many in the general public have that it is a leading cause of both violence, but also a source, again, a great resource for nonviolence. And so uh, there are excellent books already out there on religion and violence. And um, Mike and I both utilized Mark Juergensmeyer's really outstanding uh, Terror in the Mind of God. It's a real, it's a classic in that field. And uh, it's something we've both used a lot. And uh, Mark Juergensmeyer uh, very graciously agreed to write the introduction to this book for us. And uh, really an excellent introduction. I we're we're very grateful to him and i think it's one of the selling points of the book is his introduction it's very helpful reflections on religion violence and nonviolence and um, what we were hoping to provide in future versions of the course was a kind of companion volume and we were also getting feedback from students that you know we hear so much about religion and violence but what about the positive side, right? Where where do we see religion used as a resource for nonviolence? So we thought that, that uh, for a course on this complex topic, you know, religion, violence, and nonviolence, one could utilize Mark Juergensmeyer's book. We we could use utilize Terror in the Mind of God, and then complementary to that would be this book, uh, this volume on nonviolence in the world's religions, so that students would get that sort of full range of how religion is utilized as a a resource both for those who want to foment violence and for those who want to uh, promote nonviolence. And uh, we decided it should be an edited volume. Uh, neither of us felt that we had the expertise to write a definitive volume on this. Of course, Mark, Mark, Mark's book is his own, and but that's because he's done so much of the hard work, the sociology, the interviews uh, with uh, practitioners from a wide array, array of traditions in order to, to create that volume. What we did was uh, try to tap into 
the hive mind, you know, the expertise of people uh, in our field. And uh, I did contribute uh, one essay. I, I wrote the uh, article on Hinduism and nonviolence. But then we got scholars of Buddhism, uh, the Sikh tradition, uh, Jainism, uh, the Abrahamic religions, Judaism, Christianity, Islam. And in fact, I, I want readers to know and prospective readers to know that we, we actually initially cast a very wide net. We were intending to have chapters on Native American religion, uh, indigenous African religions, uh, religion in Oceania, uh, wide, wide array uh, religions of China, Taoism, Confucianism. And what happened was, I, I think uh, this was largely a function of the pandemic. It was just very difficult to get people to contribute pieces on, on many of those traditions. Uh, in some cases, uh, people were just already overworked. Uh, in some of those areas, you just have a really a fairly small number of people whose expertise is in not only in that particular tradition, but in its implications for nonviolence. And those people are in very high demand. So, you know, we, we had people who would reply and say, I'm sorry, I just can't do this. We would have people reply and say, uh, come back to me in five or 10 years and maybe I'll be able to do it. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and then, um, you know, and, and very often uh, there were also, it would be the case we just wouldn't get a response uh, because uh, it was just, it was hard to get, uh, you know, people from all of those areas. And this is why it turned into a concise introduction. It's not a very thick book, uh, but it is very user-friendly for students. And I think the fact that it is in paperback, the fact that it is not a massive tome, actually makes it a, a very nice book for uh, assigning in courses. Uh, and that's our main audience that we had in mind. Though I think the general reader who just would like to know the basics of nonviolence in what are generally regarded as the major traditions, they can find that here easily. So the traditions we cover are uh, Hindu, Jain, Buddhist, and Sikh, uh, Jewish, Christian, and Islamic. And then we do have the chapter on Oceania, uh, which uh, we did get an author to, uh, to contribute that. So we do go a little beyond the big isms, uh, but not much. Uh, and again, that was just a function of... of you know, what we were able to gather together. But uh, that's the basic story. We, we wanted to come up with this reader that would be uh, useful for courses of the kind that we were both teaching and that would appeal to a general audience as well, because it is a timely issue. It seems to be an ever timely issue. And uh, we, uh, um, in, in fact, there was a bit of good fortune here as well. As we were talking about doing something of this kind, Rutledge actually reached out to us um, for uh, the possibility of doing a, a, a book. So they had, they had something in mind, something similar to this. And we said, oh, this is what we're thinking about. And so it, it ended up being very fortuitous that they contacted us. So uh, we, uh, we put together the volume and uh, it came out uh, just this past year. And I've uh, been very pleased with the responses I've gotten to it uh, thus far. Um, there are people assigning it in courses. And uh, I was asked by Rutledge to write a little blog piece on the pedagogy of nonviolence. I had an opportunity to do that. I was also asked to speak on it uh, at the Vedanta Society of New York. And that talk's been put up on YouTube. So uh, the, the book has generated some conversation uh, already. And then of course, now I'm here with you. So that brings us to the present day. <laughs> Fantastic, rich backstory, uh, whereby you've uh, addressed a number of uh, salient points, um, um, not least of which um, 
the audience, the intended audience. Uh, it's a book that's accessible. It, there's a pedagogical purpose behind it, both for the interested layperson and in the undergraduate student. Um, it definitely, uh, in in my my estimation, not that you need my estimation, it would be an excellent. Um, it would be excellent for undergrads. And currently, every once in a while, I'll, I'll have a session with contracts. So currently, I'm teaching a couple of undergraduate courses at the University of Lethbridge, and I love teaching undergrads. Don't ask me why. <laughs> I love it. Um, um, Their minds are open, and they have a lot of good questions, and uh, I enjoy that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so um, I'm thinking of assigning bits of this for one of our Indonesian classes. Um, now, if someone was to say, look, nonviolence, hey, I took a world religions course way back when in college and nonviolence, I'm listening to the Indian religions podcast and nonviolence, that's ahimsa, right? That's, oh yeah, the Dharmic traditions, right? That's, that's nonviolence. Um, but you're talking about nonviolence in, in the Abrahamic religions as well and elsewhere. What do you mean by that? Do they have ahimsa too? Or how are you defining that? What might you say to that? Right. So yes, there are, um, it, you know, ahimsa is a concept. I think it is fairly specific to the, the Dharma traditions and the traditions from India. Um, but some concept of nonviolence is present in all the Abrahamic traditions. And it is uh, present, it, it manifests in different ways, right? Because when you're talking about a completely different worldview, completely different cosmology. And so uh, there is that concept of peace, which comes from, of course, obedience to the will of God, uh, the idea that, you know, uh, God has proclaimed, you know, what, what human beings need to do in order to, to live and to thrive and, and to, to be happy. Uh, we often fall short of that, but, you know, the, the commandments are there. Uh, and the, the idea of the sanctity of life is a very big one. Uh, life as something, as, as a gift of God, and therefore not something that anyone other than God is really uh, uh, enabled to take away, uh, at least, you know, beyond very circumscribed uh, situations. Of course, every tradition also, uh, as they talk about nonviolence, and, and uh, Mark Jurgensmeyer points this out in his introduction, they also sort of carve out a space for violence as well, because there is this sense that we're in a, in a violent world, right, that um, things like self-defense and, and so forth, uh, there needs to be some allowance for. Uh, but the idea that uh, the, the ideal ethic that we should all be following is one where we respect life, respect the lives of others, and do not engage in, in needless violence, uh, that, that is, uh, that's promoted in all the traditions and upheld in all the traditions. Uh, and even while they all wrestle in various ways with that space for violence as well. And that's something I think the authors have done a great job of, of addressing too in, in the chapters. And none of them speaks exclusively about violence. There, there's all, or about nonviolence. There's, there's always some mention of, because it's recognized uh, that there will be violence in, in the histories of these traditions as well. And why, and how is that rationalized? and understood from within the traditions. But yeah, I would say the Abrahamic traditions, uh, as well as the Dharma traditions, uh, because of this idea of the sanctity of life, uh, nonviolence remains very central. Uh, you know, you shall not kill, you shall not murder, right? This is uh, 
um, a very central thing. Uh, of the, the Abrahamic traditions, the one I'm personally most familiar with is Christianity. And I know there have been quite a few uh, nonviolent and even pacifist movements uh, in the Christian tradition through history. And in fact, my local geography uh, reminds me of this because in Pennsylvania, we have what are called the four peace churches, the uh, Quakers, the Amish, the Mennonites, and the Brethren. The Brethren were the founders of the college where I teach. All four of these traditions are committed to um, nonviolence in the sense of pacifism. Uh, so um, even self-defense, even uh, warfare and so on are not seen as legitimate um, occasions for violence in those traditions. And uh, very famously, members of those churches were conscientious objectors uh, during wartime in, in, the, in U.S. history. And uh, so that, that, and that's something our college really talks about a lot. It's, it's a lot of colleges will talk about their commitment to uh, peace and social justice. But one of the things, in fact, one of the things I found appealing when I applied for my job here over 20 years ago was they actually have the word nonviolence in their mission statement. And that's relatively rare. You won't see that in every uh, at every uh, liberal arts college, but it is part of the church uh, heritage of this college. So it's it's definitely there in the in the Abrahamic traditions, and uh, you know, but manifesting in different in different ways and to varying degrees and so on. What do you say in your Hinduism chapter? So my Hinduism chapter, uh, I have uh, several. Uh, it has several parts uh, that I look at. In fact, I start with a my own uh, sort of humble translation of the Shanti Mantra from uh, the Atharvaveda, and uh, that's you know right here in the very heart of the Hindu tradition as we generally define it in in the Vedas themselves. This ideal of peace, not only between human beings but among all beings, right? Peace to the animals, peace to the plants, peace to the waters, peace to the sky, and, and uh, peace to every aspect of life, uh, that, this is, that this is foundational uh, to Hindu traditions. And that the idea of peace, the idea of ahimsa, there are really two concepts. You have ahimsa, and of course, shanti is there as well. And they are distinct. So ahimsa, nonviolence in thought, word, and action. Uh, this uh, is rooted ultimately in the unity of existence, which uh, you see, of course, very vividly in Advaita Vedanta, all is Brahman, and this becomes foundational to uh, Vedantic ethics. And uh, especially when you look in the modern period at teachers like Swami Vivekananda, they talk, they say things like, you know, love your neighbor as yourself because your neighbor is yourself. Uh, we are all one. We are all ultimately part of the same cosmic consciousness. And seeing and perceiving that and living accordingly uh, issues in a life of nonviolence. And of course, a way to achieve that consciousness is to live nonviolently. That's part of the, the Hindu ethic. And then even in the more dualistic traditions, you have uh, the idea that the divine reality is present within all the jivas. All the jivas are linked back to Krishna, they're linked back to Ishwara, they're linked back to God, and uh, God is present in all. The Gita enjoins us to see the divine within all beings. So uh, there's a very deep sort of metaphysical basis for uh, ahimsa in Hindu traditions. And then, of course, the concept of shanti, uh, we, we have uh, the, the very profound sense of peace that comes over us when we are living in harmony with the divine reality, with other beings within ourselves. And this is something that's cultivated through 
meditation cultivated through bhakti uh, and so on. And uh, of course, it's, it's codified in the, the yamas and the niyamas of the Yoga Sutra. And that's where you see ahimsa uh, given as the, as the first of the yamas, the first of the ethical restraints. Uh, and then I talk about uh, the, as in all the traditions, where there is this kind of circumscribed place for, for violence as well, because there is also very frank recognition in the Hindu tradition that not all beings have reached that level of spiritual evolution where they can see God in one another and spontaneously live nonviolently. And a lot of people are living still at a very materialistic level where uh, they're seeking their happiness in, uh, you know, acquiring the goods of others. <laughs> and you have uh, people who uh, engage in theft, you have people engage in warfare uh, for acquisitive reasons. And so uh, there is a uh, a tradition uh, in Hinduism of, of recognizing that. And therefore, uh, what I say, and, and here I mentioned the Arthashastra, that the ideal, uh, the ideal for the individual, you could say, is utopian. God realization, right? Nothing less than the full realization of our divine potential. And part of that is willing the good of all beings, having love and compassion for all beings, treating them nonviolently. But the understanding is that society you know, as long as we're in sansara, right? as long as we're in the cycle of rebirth, there are going to be people who are violent, they're going to be people who are nonviolent. And so the ideal that you see in the Arthashastra is not so much a utopian ideal, it's more of an ideal of the containment and the mitigation of violence as much as possible. And this is done traditionally through having a stratum of society that is trained in the art of warfare and whose job is to uphold dharma by you know, restraining those who would go against it. And even that, if you look at the Dharma Shastras uh, and, and at the, uh, particularly also at the uh, epics, the Ramayana, the Mahabharata, uh, there are so many rules that constrain what is considered the proper use of violence in Hinduism, right? That not only is it only a certain class of people who are supposed to engage in violence, but even they have to follow rules, right? You're not supposed to attack non-combatants. You're not supposed to attack someone who's retreating. And of course, there is this great tradition uh, in, the, in the Mahabharata of uh, you only fight during certain times. And in the evening, the warriors from the opposing armies would get together and drink and party and, you know, talk about the events of the day and brag about what they had done and then fight again the next day. So you get this almost very genteel kind of, uh, you know, um, uh, courtly uh, idea of, of, uh, of the Kshatriya code from many of these texts. And of course, it's debatable to what extent that was upheld historically, um, though there is this very compelling, there's this, all, this really interesting little bit from Megasthenes that I always find uh, fascinating, that the Greek ambassador to the court of Chandragupta Maurya uh, once observed uh, two armies clashing in a field in India, fighting a fierce battle. And in the adjacent field, there was a farmer plowing with his ox, seemingly unconcerned because he knew that he was not the target of, of the violence. So uh, it's, uh, it's uh, you get a twofold ideal of nonviolence in Hinduism that on the level of the individual, our ultimate goal is to achieve realization and, and nonviolence, ahimsa, 
It's one of the yamas. It's part of that process, that, that yogic process. But that society at large, the best it can do is constrain and confine and mitigate violence. And that the whole system of uh, the kshatriyas and the kshatriya code was intended to do that. And I say a little bit about how that translates into the modern era, because of course, India is a democratic society. It's not organized along those principles. Today, people join the police or the military because they choose to do so. Uh, though I do know there are families, I know some of these families in India who have long and distinguished military histories. Uh, and uh, it can be some, something like almost a matter of a, of a hereditary uh, expectation that you know my father, my grandfather, my great-grandfather, my great-great-grandfather, they were all soldiers. I'm going to be a soldier too. So you do have families like that in India. Uh, and uh, the, the thing that I really wanted to emphasize in, in regard to that is the con concept of svadharma, because uh, very often in Western traditions, we tend to think in very universal terms. So if we say, okay, nonviolence is the ideal, that means everybody has to be nonviolent. Whereas with svadharma, you have the idea that different people have different duties depending on who they are. And so there are those for whom there is a duty to you know, within the dharmic constraints to carry out acts of violence, but everyone else is pretty much expected to be nonviolent. I mean, it's, um, that is the, the dharmic understanding. And the other thing I think that's important to mention is, and, and this is true generally in the Dharma traditions, that when we're talking about nonviolence, it doesn't stop with other human beings, but that it extends to all life. And of course, this is why uh, you know, India is the country in the world with the largest number of vegetarians. And uh, even though not everyone in the uh, Hindu tradition is vegetarian, there's a strong vegetarian ethos. And even among people who are not vegetarian, there are meats they won't eat, right? There, there's a, it, 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 it reminds you of that kshatriya ideal in a sense that, you know, even in that area, it's confined in some way. So there are people who say, okay, they, they'll eat meat, but they only eat chicken or they'll eat fish, but they won't eat any land animal or, you know, they constrain it in various ways. And then of course you have the people who abide by the very strict norms and, you know, basically have a vegan diet and uh, uh, something akin to what's there in the Jain tradition. And so that's, that's the gist of my chapter. And of course, I say, say a few words about Gandhi. Um, I, I contrast Gandhi with Aurobindo. They really had different takes on this um, uh, question and on the Bhagavad Gita particularly. Uh, so that's, that pretty much sums it up. We should definitely chat once the podcast is over about a project that I'm working on for the International Committee of the Red Cross, talking mm. about um, justifications of force in Hinduism. But just now you talked about... I'm, involved in that. I'm actually involved oh. in that. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> Even better. <laughs> we definitely need to chat. Yeah. Um, you just mentioned Jainism in, in yes. passing. Do you want to say a word about what's in the Jain chapter? Sure. Brianne Donaldson wrote the Jain chapter, and uh, it's a fantastic chapter and uh, highly recommend it. And uh, the Jain chapter, of course, in the Jain tradition, which I've also written on elsewhere, uh, Ahinsa is a very strong emphasis. It is, uh, I would say, even more so than in Hinduism, you see the Jain tradition being defined by Ahinsa, most uh, dramatically, of course, in the lifestyles of the monastics. Uh, Jain Munis uh, and, and Sadvis, uh, monks and nuns, uh, are known for 
uh, you know, sweeping the ground in front of them so that they avoid treading on uh, even an insect. Um, the, um, uh, there's the practice of, uh, on some occasions at least, or within some sects, of uh, having something called the mupati, that is the mouth shield, uh, that avoids ingestion of microorganisms and uh, uh, insects and, and so on. In fact, it's interesting, I'll just, just a side note, I, I have a very good uh, Jane friend, uh, one of my many Jane friends, um, who's a physician, and he pointed out that with the pandemic, he said, we've all become Janes, right, because everyone's wearing masks now, and, uh, you you know, being careful about where, how we move about. That's also part of the, the uh, regulations for the Jain monks and nuns. Everything the monks and nuns do is intended to avoid violence. And uh, it's not well known, but uh, even when sleeping, if you, you know, when, when you're going to turn over, if, if you, uh, if you wake up enough to realize you're going to turn over, should sweep the ground where you're sleeping and make sure that you're not turning, rolling over onto some uh, unfortunate uh, insect. So it's a very, very uh, comprehensive uh, practice of nonviolence. Of course, the Jane laypersons, the householders who were the majority of Jains, don't follow the strictures to that extent because it's just not feasible to live a lay life in the modern world uh, and do that. But even for Jain laypersons, uh, it, is a, it is a very strict observance. And of course, the Jain diet is... Uh, it's not a vegan diet because Jains have traditionally used milk products um, as those are given freely and naturally by animals. But there's a movement among contemporary Jains toward veganism because of the cruelty involved in the milk extraction process in modern factory farming. So uh, there is a movement uh, away from uh, uh, even milk. Uh, so I know, I know Jains who've become vegan. I know Jains who will still drink milk, but they only drink organic milk. They say, well, that's extracted in the more natural way and, and so on. And uh, the extent to which Jains debate and, and think about and, and really focus Focus on these issues is uh, is quite impressive, I and mean, it's it's a major topic of conversation of texts and so on. Uh, what should be eaten? What what should not be eaten? And this goes back to ancient times. And in fact, uh, it might be it might be the basis of one of the distinctive Jane teachings that uh, Brienne mentions in her article that I've also written quite a bit about, um, the teaching of the complexity of existence, Anikantavada, and that uh, because of the complexity of, of existence, uh, any given topic can be viewed from many perspectives, and so we need to be mindful of how we make philosophical claims and statements and not to be too absolutist or dogmatic. Um, this one possible origin of those doctrines might be a discussion very early in the history of Jainism between monks about what was alive and what was not, right? So what one needed to take care to avoid, say, stepping upon or not eating, and what one did not need to be concerned about that. Because uh, in Jain teaching, jivas or souls uh, are everywhere, right? Not only in what we think of as plants or animals, but even what are generally understood as inanimate objects like stones have jivas in them. So uh, there needs to be some mindfulness of uh, when is one inflicting pain and when is one not. And so this whole question of, is this alive? Is it in some sense alive, in some sense not alive? 
might have been uh, one of the things that uh, led to this perspective. Um, Piotr Belserowicz, I hope I'm not butchering his name, um, Polish scholar of, of uh, Jainism has written about this recently. And it's uh, um, one of the theories uh, of how Anikantavada came to be. And of course, Anikantavada is also sometimes understood to be uh, in the modern period, at least, uh, a kind of intellectual expression of ahimsa, that you don't want to be too dogmatic, that everyone has some truth in their perspective. So it's not correct to say that someone's just wrong. It's like they're partially correct, but they're not wrong. Uh, and so uh, these are all things that are covered in, in Brianne's article, and uh, she does a very good job of it. Fascinating. Um, um, Jainism uh, very much. Uh, how does one even... Cognize Jainism without ahimsa, extreme ahimsa. It's it's so foundational, fundamental. Um, uh, what about Buddhism? What's that about Buddhism? Buddhism article is uh, is very very interesting. Of course, ahimsa is also very central to Buddhism. Uh, Stephen Jenkins though uh, writes an article for uh, this book, which uh, uh, does seek to problematize that somewhat because you know he's very aware of incidents in the contemporary period of violence between, uh, say, uh, the Buddhists and Rohingya in Myanmar, uh, between Buddhists and the largely Tamil-speaking population in Sri Lanka not too long ago. Um, so the, there have been incidents of violence in Buddhism, and how is this understood? And um, one of the things that's interesting is, uh, and, and this goes back to Mark Jurgensmeyer's introduction as well, is that even in traditions uh, where uh, clear violence has been committed in the name of the religion, even those who have engaged in such violence, even some of the terrorists whom Jurgensmeyer has interviewed, will insist to him that their religion is nonviolent, that it is inherently nonviolent, that it is inherently peaceful. And so Jenkins talks about how you know there the the Buddhist understandings of violence are that. Any any act that one, like let's say an external observer might look at and see as violent, if it's done with the correct intention, if it's done uh, in order to prevent greater suffering, right? If it's, if it's done in order to advance dharma, the argument is that it is actually nonviolent. So it's like nonviolent violence. Uh, there, there's a famous story of a uh, Tibetan monk uh, the, in, in the early days of Buddhism in Tibet. Uh, one of the kings of Tibet actually uh, persecuted the tradition. He, he was not that fond of Buddhism, and he thought the monks were becoming too powerful. And he was assassinated by a monk. And when the monk was asked about the violence he'd committed and didn't this violate the teaching of Buddhism, uh, the monk explained that the king was creating very bad karma for himself through his persecution of Buddhists. Uh, he was therefore going to suffer greatly in future lives. And by stopping that, he was actually uh, showing compassion to the king. He was reducing the amount of bad king, the karma, the karma the king was going to accumulate if he kept on persecuting Buddhists. So uh, now this might sound very strange to an outsider, right? That it sounds like a, a really like a, a rationalization, a big time of, of violent behavior. But it's important because violence, I think, for Buddhists is as definitive for Buddhism as, as it is for, for Jainism, right? It, it is a central value. It is something that the Buddha taught. 
And what happened, I think, in the case of Buddhism, and in some ways, I think you could draw analogies with Christianity, is that as it expanded across Asia, and as it became in many places a state religion, uh, its interests came to be bound up with those of the state. So much so that, uh, and again, good analogy can be made with Christianity, an attack on the state could be seen as an attack on the religion, right, or on the Dharma in the case of Buddhism. And so then you are in this situation where some limited concept of violence has to be rationalized, right? But the Buddhist understanding of violence is that when or if it occurs, it always needs to be uh, engaged in compassionately. That is, that sounds strange. How can you be compassionately violent? But meaning the aim is to prevent greater suffering, right? You're inflicting suffering on someone, but you're doing that to prevent them from causing even greater suffering, even greater destruction. So again, it's kind of that ethos of minimizing violence. Uh, Paradoxically, maybe through violence sometimes, but uh, nevertheless, that that nonviolent ideal remains absolutely central. And uh, of course, you know, for ordinary Buddhists, that also uh, is the case. Now we know the strictures of Buddhism at the personal level aren't as strong as those of Jainism. Um, not all Buddhists are vegetarian. Uh, uh, there, uh, there's even questions about the Buddha himself because uh, his injunction to his disciples was that they were not to kill any animals. Uh, no animals were to be killed for them, right? So if they arrived at someone's home and the householder said, oh, let me kill my chicken and feed it to you, they would, they would say, no, don't do that. Uh, but that if there was some meat that was already present, and that's what the householder put in their bowls, they were to eat it and not complain. And uh, so uh it's a more it's a little more of a passive concept i think of nonviolence it's it's not so much that um there's this very very strong mindfulness you see in jainism of you know i'm going to avoid harming anything at all as much as humanly possible it's much more i am not going to willfully commit violence myself but you know there may be other violence going on around uh, but that that i'm not going to personally engage in it and of course buddhists have always existed in uh, multi-religious society so uh, when it comes to things like meat eating there have always been people in other communities who were quite happy to be you know butchering and selling meat and so on and so uh, buddhists would not engage in that but they might you know purchase it and uh, so uh in the modern period, that is being questioned more and more because, of course, I think there's a more sophisticated understanding now that, uh, you know, if you, uh, say, purchase something that was created using violence, well, you're creating a demand for it. Right? There's sort of a supply and demand logic. So aren't you therefore also participating to some extent in that violence? So I, the, a growing number of Buddhists actually are vegetarian and are, are seeing that as a more uh, more in tune with the Buddha's teaching than uh, than what has often been the more traditional practice. But it, it is interesting. I mean, the, the traditional practice uh, often is not, uh, does not emphasize nonviolence as much as one might expect. I have a friend who's, uh, he's, a, he's a Westerner, he's an American, um, and uh, he became Buddhist, and he became a Buddhist monk, and he went to Thailand. And of course, for him, being vegetarian was part and parcel of being Buddhist, right? It, it all involved a commitment to nonviolence, not harming any living being. And then when he went to Thailand, he found that he was eating more meat than he ever had before, because uh, 
the meat was considered the good food, that that's what you would give the monks, right? And so, uh, uh, and the idea is you're supposed to just take it and not complain. So uh, that's what he was doing. And he said it was interesting. He said he, he's back to being a vegetarian now. He, he, he eventually uh, stopped being a monk and came back. He's still a Buddhist. And he's again a vegetarian. He said, now that I'm not a monk, I can be a vegetarian, <laughs> which was kind of a paradoxical statement, I think, if we think of our kind of maybe Western stereotypes of what Buddhism involves. And so Jenkins's article is good at kind of uh, challenging some of these things. It, it may make some Buddhists unhappy because uh, of for many practicing Buddhists, and I think I would want to underscore this, nonviolence is the ideal, and that's no less true than it is for Jains or Hindus or anyone uh, else who, who's committed to nonviolence. Uh, and Jenkins certainly acknowledges that, but I think he wanted to problematize what he saw as maybe stereotypes uh, that have arisen on the basis of that uh, that understanding of Buddhism, um, but uh, but yeah, his chapter is 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 quite a good one, I think. You want to make mention of the Sikhism chapter? Yes, the Sikhism the Sikh chapter uh, was a collaborative chapter. Actually, there were two authors involved uh, in that chapter: uh, Cynthia Kepley Mahmood and Maria Teresa Milan Benicola. And uh, it's also an excellent chapter, uh, Sikhi and Nonviolence. And uh, there too, uh, in fact, their job is in some ways almost the reverse of Stephen uh, Jenkins' job in the Buddhism chapter, because there, there are widespread stereotypes uh, associating the Sikh tradition with violence, because you had the whole tradition of the Khalsa, uh, the uh, self-defense and protection of the community, the wearing of the kirpan, the dagger, uh, and so on. And uh, so, uh, but in the Sikh tradition too, the ideal is nonviolence. And in the Sikh tradition too, uh, the purpose of violence when it occurs is to prevent greater suffering and to to be conducive to a world of uh, of nonviolence, um, Guna Nanak very famously was uh, was an adherent of nonviolence, um, and uh, but we also know that the Sikh community has has suffered greatly throughout its history. Right, they, again and again they've been attacked um, by various forces uh, at various times, and so uh, this tradition of of self defense and and of the Sikhs as as almost something like a Kshatriya community of their own. Uh, really uh, has become prominent, uh, a prominent part of the self-understanding of the tradition. And so they really, they do a good job of, of explaining that, of, of the dynamic of violence and nonviolence uh, in the Sikh uh, community and the Sikh tradition. Um, because again, uh, all of these traditions, uh, people have stereotyped understandings of them. And so um, the same person who might be shocked to find that there are Buddhist monks who eat meat, might also be shocked to find nonviolence associated with Sikhi, but, uh, but it is, it's, it's integral to the tradition. Um, there are some differences, I think, uh, that make the Sikh tradition stand out from uh, the other traditions that originated in India. Uh, it is, it has, it's, it's less of an ascetic sort of vision of reality. Uh, it's, it's a little more robustly theistic. So you have the idea, much as you find in the Abrahamic traditions, that this world is God's gift. It's something to be enjoyed. Um, whereas very often uh, traditions uh, where, for example, vegetarianism is emphasized very strongly, uh, there's also a strong undercurrent there of withdrawal from the material world, right? that the material world is a place of violence. It's a place that's uh, of death and suffering. We want to identify with the spirit and and, and 
you know, liberate ourselves from that. And I'm thinking of Jainism, especially there. Um, whereas the Sikh tradition as uh, much more of a bent toward this world. Right? Uh, there's a very strong ethos of seva, service to, to others, uh, and so on, which again is not absent in the Dharma, the other Dharma traditions, but the emphasis is different. Right? And so uh, there, you're not going to have uh, so much of an ethos of withdrawing from the material world, uh, but much more of engagement with the material world. So less, uh, you know, of a tendency to be ultra scrupulous about what one eats and that sort of thing. You, uh, uh, I know there are vegetarians in the Sikh community. I know vegetarian Sikhs, but I also know Sikhs who eat meat, who eat any kind of meat and uh, really don't see that as, uh, as problematic at all. Uh, in their practice, but they wouldn't see themselves as violent as a result of that. Well, that would make sense given given the the origins of um, of of Jainism and Buddhism as part of the Shramana sort of ascetic movement that gets folded back into Hinduism versus exactly. Sikhism, which which arises much later in a very different householding context. Exactly, it comes from a householder context. Uh, it comes uh, through the interactions with Islam, which also has that, of course, very Abrahamic affirming of the world. World affirming, exactly, exactly. And uh, you know, one hesitates to get. You know, we don't want to push these things too hard. Of you know, world affirming, world denying, and and so on. I, I think that 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 also gets problematic. But certainly, you can think of a spectrum, and on that spectrum. Definitely the Shramana traditions, Buddhism and Jainism, they're really at the nonviolent end. Hinduism seems to be a negotiation between both of these. And so, you know, you have the ascetic ideal, but the kind of concession to I, the name. I call it the, the Dharmic double helix. It's just, it's this walking oh. contradiction, right? <laughs> it pulls in everything, right? Or, 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 or walking paradox, at least. And then you have the, the Sikh tradition, which would be at the other end of that spectrum. So, yeah, um, when you when you talk about spectra, what, what uh, often when, I, when I'm teaching um, other continuing studies or undergrads, uh, top subjects of Indic origin, um, one metaphor I like to use is that um, is that the Dharma traditions they deal more in dials and switches. Yeah. Right? So yeah. Uh, so so you know it, it depends on where you it depends where you are on the spectrum. Um, what we will most definitely uh, cross post this podcast to the channels to the related channels like uh, christian studies jewish studies so let's talk a bit about the the subsequent contributions shall we okay sure sure yeah so so what can we learn about judaism and nonviolence? so uh yeah so we have an excellent chapter on uh, judaism and nonviolence. uh, uh also a, a collaboration uh between uh aaron han tapper and uh, ilana sumka and uh, in fact their chapter is a very interesting title uh because whereas all the other chapters use titles that that indicate a certain singularity you know hinduism and nonviolence, jainism buddhism sikhi Theirs is titled Judaisms and Nonviolence. So they're signaling the internal diversity of, of uh, the Jewish tradition or traditions. And uh, that's a major theme, of course, of their chapter. And that uh, nonviolence is understood different way in, diff in different ways in different Jewish communities. And uh, of course, there's a long tradition in Judaism of, of debate. Uh, and uh, the... One thing I think a lot of people outside of the Jewish tradition often don't grasp, and especially coming maybe from a Christian background, there's this 
concept of a kind of single orthodoxy that everyone follows and that everyone believes in. But mm, the sense of Judaism communicated in this chapter is much more one of a conversation where there are certain core topics. And if you care deeply about those topics, you're part of the Jewish conversation, uh, but uh, that the positions that are taken uh, vary greatly. So there are positions within uh, Judaism or among the Judaisms, you could say, that are very uh, hardcore, nonviolent, you know, almost Jain uh, in their outlook. Uh, there are Jewish vegetarians uh, who hold an outlook of this kind. And then you have, a, again, a spectrum, uh, then finally getting more towards the kind of just war end of, of things. Uh, they also point out that for most of its history, it has been a nonviolent tradition on the whole. Um, Unlike Christianity and Buddhism and Islam, which became you know, the religions of states, and you have that kind of coalescence of the state and, and the faith that often then produces the, this question of, of war and violence, for most of uh, the history of Judaism, uh, this has been a, a diasporic people who've been a minority wherever they were. And uh, so it was certainly, uh, I mean, of course, part of the ideal of the tradition, but also a matter of survival to have peaceful relations with your neighbors and uh, not be uh, engaged in a lot of violence, right? It, it's, it seems that it's only when states come into the question that then you get this question of, of violence because the state states all engage in violence, right? They need, they need to be protected uh, and so on. And uh, so, uh, this this question of religion and violence has become more urgent since the founding of the state of Israel. Uh, it's become a real issue of you know uh, within the Jewish community of you know negotiating uh, the survival of the tradition and at the same time with adherence to its highest ideals. So the debate goes on, and it's it's a very uh, you know sometimes very sharp uh, debate that that continues to the present time. Uh, in Judaism. And that, that internal diversity, the, the fact that there are many perspectives within that uh, debate is captured well in that chapter. And uh, then moving on to the Christianity chapter, also uh, you know, there are accounts of the various uh, nonviolent movements within Christianity. And uh, the author of that piece uh, of the Christianity uh, chapter um, is uh, Gerald Schlabach, and uh, he he has a preference uh, himself for nonviolence that comes through, I think, in in the chapter. Um, but it's it's not a prescriptive chapter. It's it's all of these are sort of historical overviews of the tradition. Uh, but there there's been a very strong current of of nonviolence and of uh, even of, of pacifism uh, in Christianity, and even Christianities which uh, affirm uh, vegetarianism and a more kind of thoroughgoing ahimsa, um, though that's been more rare. Um, and then, of course, at the other end of that spectrum, you have the just war tradition pioneered mainly in the Catholic Church, uh, though even within the Catholic Church, you have nonviolent movements um, prominently in the modern period, uh, the Catholic worker movement, uh, Dorothy Day, you know, very strong advocate of absolute nonviolence, uh, that, you know, when Jesus said, turn the other cheek, he meant it, right? That that's what is uh, to be done. And, uh, and of course, uh, these questions go all the way back to the founding of, of the tradition. Uh, and, and again, that question of the state uh, becomes uh, 
uh, a kind of looming issue. Was it proper for Christians to serve as soldiers in the Roman army, for example? You know, these are the kinds of questions that were there from right from the beginning. So uh, it was uh, debated from, from an early time. So within Christianity, too, you get diverse views. Uh, but again, nonviolence as the ideal, but uh, very often a kind of concession with worldly realities when it comes to self-defense, defense of the state, and, and so on. Where do, what does Islam have to say about nonviolence? Ah, so Islam, yeah, so, there, so we have our chapter on Islam as well. Um, and uh, Muhammad Abu Naimer and uh, Isa Kadeichi Oriana, uh, they have written uh, a chapter on Islam and nonviolence. And uh, there too, you have nonviolence as the ideal, uh, that uh, peace as the ideal, uh, that when one surrenders to the will of God, uh, peace is what ensues. Um, there are uh, sections on, you know, um, Parts of the chapter where there's discussion about relations of, of Muslims and non-Muslims and, uh, you know, how uh, injunctions from the Quran and Hadith, how the Sharia sort of enjoin uh, Muslims to behave uh, in regard to non-Muslims. And again, it, it is generally a non-violent um, uh, path, what you find, again, is sort of these exceptions carved out. Uh, the idea of jihad as a kind of just war, right? If the community is attacked, uh, if the community is, uh, you know, needs to defend itself, then violence is enjoined. Um, but, uh, but only then. And uh, so that is, th that is the understanding uh, that is conveyed there. And of course, you have traditions, especially like Sufi traditions, uh, and so on, where you have very strong affirmations of, of nonviolence. And uh, a lot of that coming right up to the present day. And of course, there is, the, there are of course, another whole discourse in Islam that is quite different from that, where you have, uh, you know, the non-Islamic world seen as, you know, the realm of war, the realm of conflict. And uh, there's kind of back and forth dynamic within the community uh, about which of those is really the normative vision. And so as with the other traditions we've looked at, we see there's, there's no single monolithic uh, understanding and that these things are still being debated and negotiated right up to the, to the present time. And... Last but certainly not least, uh, the Oceania, and, uh, and that's a very interesting chapter as well. And uh, it it takes a little different um, path than the other chapters in the book. Uh, this is by Andrew Strathern and Pamela Stewart, and uh, based a lot of it on their own field work uh, in the South Pacific Islands. And uh, it's it's interesting. Nonviolence there too is. Uh, seen as something that the gods enjoin. Uh, it is part of harmony with the larger natural world. Uh, and uh, violence is seen within it as uh, uh, not so much an aberration because there's violence in nature as well, uh, but as something that needs to be confined. And they talk about rituals for sort of confining violence and restraining violence in various ways. Uh, and uh, there, there are rituals for uh, basically releasing tensions within the community, right? Uh, when, when people are having some difficulty, they're supposed to take it to the gods, they, they go to the, they, they perform the ritual and then no more is to be said of, of the matter. And so uh, the, their focus is not so much on sort of like the big war and peace issues and, and things that we see in many of the other chapters, but uh, it's much more about maintaining harmony within the community and uh, preventing interpersonal quarrels from disrupting the harmony of the society. 
So that's that's where you see the focus of, of that, which makes sense when you think of a community that is mostly made up of a bunch of very small communities, right? You have fairly small populations on the various islands. They're all interconnected uh, in various ways. But, you know, if, if you have some big dispute that arises within a fairly small group of people who need one another to survive, then you have a, a much more serious uh, issue. And um, so we so, sort of uh, joke about these things sometimes in the Indian community. Like we have our... Uh, um, our, our local group uh, in the Indian community that split into two groups because people couldn't get along. And uh, you know, if you were living on an island together, you couldn't do that, <laughs> right? So uh, you, you see that, that kind of the way the geography actually shapes uh, worldviews and ethics uh, as well. So, which is kind of a nice ending for the book because I think in some ways, the planet Earth is like a small island, increasingly, where if we don't learn to get along, uh, we're not going to survive. And so I think there's wisdom to be found in, in every one of these uh, traditions, um, right up to and including uh, the Pacific Islanders uh, discussed at the end. Fascinating. I think that's a lovely thought to end on. Was there anything else about the book that you hoped to touch on? Well, actually, I realized something I realized I'd forgotten to mention something when I was giving sort of my narrative earlier of, of the book and kind of the discussions that have come since then. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with an organization called Embodied Philosophy. Uh, they uh, provide courses on various uh, topics. Uh, yeah, I, I'm a, I actually I'm familiar with them. Um, and I have I've had Jacob Kyle, their founder on the podcast, and I've appeared on his. Excellent. Actually, I'll, I'll be teaching uh, on their platform for the first time uh, in March in about a month's time. Okay, well, shortly after that in April, I'm going to be teaching something based on this book uh, on um, nonviolence and violence in spiritual traditions. Uh, they uh, they kind of worry about the word religion. I think it puts off some of their uh, clientele. Um, but, you know, it could say something like spiritual traditions or, you know, worldviews. But th that's the topic, though. It, it's we're, we're talking about how violence and nonviolence are conceptualized in, in these various traditions. Yeah, well, while I, if you have you got a bit more time, do you have to run or have you got some time? Not Great. A little bit. Um, uh, so let me ask, I mean, you, you opened the door, so I have to ask, um, you're a, a seasoned, uh, tenured academic established uh, in the field, and you're, you'll be teaching this online course, Embodied Philosophy. Yes. Could you say a little bit about, um, about what that means for you or the changes afoot? Because certainly um, that's received quite differently now than it may have been five years ago or certainly 10 years ago. And there seems to be this movement. In my case, it's, it's out of necessity. I mean, I teach the public. I love it. I'm, I'm passionate about it. And uh, it's, it's my primary means of sustenance as an independent scholar, online teaching and, and coaching. But from the perspective of, a, of an established academic, what do you... Um, how do you view such enterprises such as embodied philosophy or yogic studies or the school of Indian wisdom or what have you? Well, I, I like them because uh, one of the reasons I got into this field, one thing I'm very committed to is the idea that there are ideas in these traditions that are of universal relevance, that they're important. There are things that are 
important for all people to know and, and to learn about. And I'm also a big believer in breaking down barriers and eliminating stereotypes. So I think it's important, especially for traditions that are less known in the Western world, like the Dharma traditions of India, uh, to become better known and to become uh, known well. And sometimes there is, uh, I think people will perceive a tension between this kind of more kind of public facing activity and what we do as scholars, because what we do as scholars is much more technical, much more uh, requires much more expertise to sort of grasp what we're doing. Insular at times. A little more insular, but that that's what you need to do to really advance knowledge and so on. But uh, to uh, use an already very overworn metaphor, I think we can walk and chew gum at the same time. And uh, I think people who are deeply involved in knowledge production, the sort of academic side of the academy, uh, especially if we do have a knack for communicating with the public, if, if, if we are good at it, I think we have a duty to uh, bring that knowledge out as much as possible. And of course, there are things you just can't simplify without oversimplifying and you know for that you know maybe there there are some topics on which you know you're you're never going to have an embodied philosophy course um you know some some of the intricacies of abhidharma right are probably not going to be the topic of a <laughs> of a uh, of an embodied philosophy course but uh, there's a lot that we can communicate through those platforms i think we have a duty to and i also think for those who who uh, take those courses, that can be a stepping stone, right? That can be a, a, a gateway to that more advanced knowledge that also is there waiting in, in libraries and in, you know, university classrooms and so on, that uh, people take it up and, and go further with it. And so I, I, I like this. I, uh, in fact, if you look at my, my resume, my CV, uh, not, uh, certainly not all of them, but uh, I think a fairly large number of my publications are textbooks, reference works, and so on, precisely because I think it's important to get that out there. And that's actually what ends up shaping the larger public discourse that we're all part of, too. I mean, you you want to inject that knowledge into the larger, uh, you know, body politic uh, so that it will hopefully make people uh, more aware of the diverse worldviews and streams of thought that are available for them to tap into and think about values and think about larger issues. And, uh, and again, also that, uh, you know, eradication of stereotypes and you know, uh, giving people a more accurate understanding of, uh, you know, I, I meet people and, you know, oh, uh, what do you do? I teach courses on Hinduism. Oh, that's the one with all the gods, isn't it? You know, I mean, we want people to know more than that. Right? We want people to uh, really get a sense of the value of, of these things. So I think for that, we have to I think I, I think we have almost a duty to do things like uh, these bigger public courses locally. I uh, I often will. Uh, this was pre-COVID, but I would give courses at our local public library for interested people. Uh, I get invited to give talks at churches and high schools, and and uh, I I never turn it down if if I can fit it into my schedule because I just I think that you know those people need to hear all of this and uh, i think it's important um that's great to hear i, I couldn't agree more I, I i realize that uh public engagement is not everyone's cup of tea uh nevertheless um the tea should be served 
so if there's, you know, at, at every department, uh, the institution, if there are those who are able and willing to take up that dharma, to use your term, um, I think it's a vital um, not only for public education, which is the very the, the very mandate of this 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 conglomeration of podcasts, right? The right. Network is all about public education. Uh, it's not only vital um, for public discourse. It's also, in my view, it, it, um, increasingly vital for the, 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 the upkeep of the academy. Really. Yeah. Yes. In fact, I, I can say a couple things about that, too. Um, sometimes even when I'm doing the more, you know, kind of technical uh, work, you know, working on a paper on some fairly, uh, you know, detailed minutiae of some hair, hair splitting yeah, some hair splitting sometimes a very um what one might generally regard as naive question by one of my undergraduates sparks a whole thought process in my mind and maybe leads to uh you know some new insight into whatever it is that i'm i'm doing so i find that you know this kind of the teaching work teaching undergraduates teaching the general public uh actually it's not a distraction from my more what might some consider properly academic work it actually fuels it in- cross pollinates without without question i could not agree more um regardless of how niche what we do is and how intellectual it is it's not that it doesn't matter it's just that we've lost sight of why it matters i think that's or, often or it's challenging to communicate and and as you say when you're teaching uh, continuing studies audiences the questions can be so inspiring and they can yes. they, they just completely uh, orient uh, how you view the material by virtue of of naivete i mean um the, yeah no clearly um we need to chat uh, i should let you go i've taken enough of your time for one day thank you for um, having me i really appreciate being guest uh, or or being part of podcast number 180 <laughs> podcast 180 there you go um excellent thank you for appearing on the podcast um for those listening we've been speaking with uh dr jeffrey long uh who's a professor at um, elizabethtown university in pennsylvania on his brand new uh co-edited um rutledge publication Nonviolence in the world's religions um we'll put all of the links for uh, everything we mentioned in the podcast notes until next time stay safe stay sane and keep contemplating the power of nonviolence. <laughs>